Did I just, we didn't dismiss Children's Church yet. No, because that would be Kenna. Okay, good. So, kids, if you'd go ahead and follow them out. That's kindergarten through third grade. Thank you. Wow. Titus is strutting out of here. He has the attention of these two beautiful ladies. He's just like, so, good for him. (laughs) Best church day ever. Would you guys join me uh, in praying one more time as we come to the word? Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for how you've already made your presence known to us through worship, through sharing, through connecting with one another. Uh, Would you just continue this morning? Would you make yourself known through our word? Would you challenge, convict? Would you encourage wherever we are? Just come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started last week uh, a series called Taboos in the Church, talking about things that, whether spoken or unspoken, for a long time have just been kind of not allowed in the church. Uh, These are things that we just don't talk about, we don't really look at, we just kind of pretend sometimes like some of these issues or topics don't exist. Uh, And last week, just recapping really quickly, we looked at it and we said, man, but there's nothing taboo in the scripture. There's actually things in the scripture that will make you incredibly uncomfortable if you read them. There's nothing that was taboo to Jesus. The the definition of taboo goes like this, a social or religious custom prohibiting or forbidding discussion of a particular practice or forbidding association with a particular person, place, or thing. There was no topic that was off limits. There was no person that was off limits to Jesus. And so as long as we have a church, and again, I'm talking big C church, where these things can't be discussed, we're going to become increasingly irrelevant to the world around us, and those of us who struggle or have questions or doubts in these areas, we're just going to kind of be driven further into shame because it seems like no one else is struggling because if so, they would have talked about it. It seems like no one else has questions about that because if so, they would have talked about it. Jesus would have talked about it. And so I think we as a church are meant to talk about it. You remember this? It's making sense? Okay. So last week, we said one of the things that has to be present if we're going to talk about some of these taboo, and I keep putting it in quotes whenever we see it, some of these taboo areas of life is we have to be humble. Far too often damage is done because we walk in to these conversations as the teacher who's just waiting to tell everyone else what they need to know. What we didn't see in Jesus' life was him doing that. If anyone ever in history could have walked in and said, everyone shut up and sit down, crisscross applesauce, I got stuff to tell you, who would it have been? Jesus, right? But he didn't do that. It's intriguing when you look at the humility of Jesus. We we said this, this is a quote found somewhere on the internet. No one knows who started it. Be curious, not judgmental. I think that this really described how Jesus came. We looked last week, Jesus didn't come to judge the world, condemn the world, but to save it. And there's something really interesting about the curiosity of Jesus. When you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books in the New Testament, when you compile them together, Jesus was asked 183 questions. Some of them were different accounts of the same questioning, but you have 183 instances of Jesus being asked a question. How many questions do you think Jesus himself asked to other people? He was the teacher. He was the rabbi. He has all the answers. He was asked 183. How many do you think he asked? 183? 
It's not too many to count because we have numbers and we could count them. So there were some big ones in there, okay? Jesus asked 307 questions, almost twice as many as the amount of questions he was asked. He had the answers, right? Again, if anyone could have come in and just said, quiet, I got it from here. But what Jesus knew was that questions draw people in to deeper relationship. Questions are a way of going, hey, I actually care about you. I care about your thoughts. I'm not just here to tell you what you need to know, but I care about you. Questions draw people into deeper relationship. Harsh answers end conversations. Jesus knew this, and he was a master of it. He was curious about people. Did he ask the questions because he didn't know the answers? He asked the questions because he wanted to know the people, and he wanted them to know he cares about me. He's actually asking my thoughts, and Jesus was humble. He was curious, and he had conversations that make some of us cringe when we even read the stories. So if we're going to handle taboo topics correctly, we have to learn to ask the right questions. So what are some helpful questions to ask when we're dealing with these taboo areas of life? It can be questions that we can ask other people, but I think on the same level of importance, what questions would we need to be asking ourselves as we enter into some of these taboo areas of life? What do you think? What does the Bible say? Okay, what does the Bible say? Pretty important question, right? Okay. What would Jesus do? Okay, what would Jesus do? What else? Why do I believe what I believe? Okay, talking to somebody else and saying, hey, what are you struggling with? Okay. Okay. Asking, like, learning to ask me these questions, like, hey, what, what do you mean by that? Or, hey, I heard you say this. One that I have that has always been helpful to me is, help me understand that. Somebody says something, and often what we do is we assume, I know what they mean. I know why they said that. It is such a powerful question to just say, hey, you know, I heard you say this. Help me understand that. You know, I, I see that differently. Help me understand how you came to that. Do you see how it humbles you? And instead of coming in going, no, you're wrong, maybe some other question, but here's what the Bible says. Instead, humbling yourself and going, you know what, I'm going to be the learner here, and I want to know you more. Help me understand where you're coming from with that. It's an incredibly powerful question, something that, that you guys have, have talked about. What do you believe about this? Hey, you know, I've heard you talk about this before. I'd love to just hear, what are your thoughts on that? What do you believe about that? And then a really important follow-up question, how'd you come to believe that? Cheryl shared the story earlier of the lady just going, eh, all religions are the same. Man, I'd, I'd love to hear, like, how'd you, how'd you come to that? I see that differently. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And you see how it begins to open up conversations. There's some really important questions we need to ask ourselves. What do I believe about that? Sometimes we don't know what we believe about these things. Maybe we've heard this or we've heard that, but we don't really know. Do I know what I believe? And if so, it's the same question. How did I come to believe that? And then I think one of the most important questions, if not the most important question, what does the scripture say about that? Because listen, in the end, does it matter what you think and what I think? It really doesn't. God has given us his thoughts. 
He says in his word that we might have the same mind as Christ. Man, maybe we should check in and see what he thinks about it. If I, if I ask the question, what do I believe about that? And then I ask myself, how did I come to believe that? And it's not coming from the scriptures? Listen, I should have pause. Uh-oh, did I make this up? Did I just hear people talking about this and assume they were older than me and so they knew and I just adopted it? Or does it come from, that's what he says, and so that's what I believe? Do you see how important these questions, both in interacting with other people, but also for ourselves, become? 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. God inspired it. It is his words to us. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. My thoughts need to be shaped by his thoughts, not the other way around. The very first question for us as believers should be, what does the scripture say about that? So let's start to apply this a little bit. Let's talk about our first taboo subject, alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Don't get drunk. Okay, talks about times like don't let it have mastery over you, okay? Is that all it says? Okay, yeah, there's some, some limitations, some ideas of like, hey, be careful, you can take it too far. Okay, we're going to look at some of those. Okay, actually in the Psalms it says that wine has been given to us by God to make life merry. Does that sound like what maybe some of you grew up with in the church? Wine's a good thing, a gift from God? Like, okay, there's actually, we're going to look at almost all of these that you guys are bringing up, spot where Paul actually tells Timothy, Hey, man, stop drinking just water. Drink wine. Uh-oh. Starts to maybe go against the grain of some of what we were taught growing up, right? What, what else does the scripture have to say? Anything you can think of? Okay. So in the Old Testament, you have, and a little bit in the New, you have this idea that there was a, a certain group of people who, because of a vow they would make to the Lord, a part of that vow was I'm giving up alcohol. I'm, I'm abstaining because it's a sign of this vow that I'm making to the Lord. Okay? Mm -hmm. So in Proverbs, it talks about, man, like those in leadership and like how, how dangerous wine can be. Okay? When, when abused, when used in the wrong scenarios. Okay? Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. So, so let's look at some of these. You guys are you're reading off my list here, and it's awesome. What does the Bible say about alcohol? First of all, listen, believers drink in the Scripture. Whether it's, man. <laughs> It's actually uncomfortable sometimes because when you go back and you read like in the Old Testament, the way that it talks about alcohol, and especially like Kim was saying, some of these festivals they have, it says specifically go and buy beer and spirits 
to celebrate what the Lord has done. And we go, okay, you can, you can have a glass of wine at dinner, and you can maybe even have a beer, but like spirits, that seems like something people use to get drunk pretty quick, right? But like God is actually commanding, not just, hey, have a glass of wine with dinner, but celebrate me using, and it says like liquor. And we're like, oh, that doesn't fit with certainly 20th century Christianity, like, oh, and it can start to get a little uncomfortable. Jesus drank wine. The, the wedding at Cana, the very first miracle that Jesus did, they were running out of wine, and so he turns water into wine. And listen, did he do it to, to help save face for the people who were throwing the wedding so that they wouldn't be shamed and everything? Yep. But what did people do with the wine? <laughs> they drank it. Jesus uh, was actually compared with John the Baptist at one point. Uh, John the Baptist had taken that vow that we talked about, the vow of Nazareth in the Old Testament, where it says from his birth he would never drink uh, fermented drinks, okay? So alcohol, that he would never drink it. And Jesus comes drinking wine, and he talks to the Pharisees, and he goes, we can't win with you people. You just want to pick a fight because John came not eating and not drinking, and you said he was a prude and what a weirdo. I come eating and drinking, and you say that I'm a drunkard and a sluggard. We can't win with you people. But that's Jesus going, I drink wine. I eat what I want, and I drink. Communion, one of the most sacred acts that we have in the church. We use grape juice. He used wine. And he said, this wine actually represents my blood that was shed for you. Kim mentioned Paul talking to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Water wasn't always the safest thing back then. Wine was actually one of the safest alternatives they had to be able to carry with them and to drink and not get sick. Paul commanding Timothy, who was abstaining for whatever reason we don't know, and he says, hey, Tim, I think, I think some wine would help, man. Drink some wine. Believers drink in the scripture. I, I believe this from the scripture. I don't believe that believers under 21 should drink. And notice, I keep saying believers because it's not my job to come here and tell the world how they should handle alcohol, right? You know that? We're here to talk about what the scripture calls the people of God to. Do I think that anyone under 21 should be drinking? No. But again, part of this, understanding our role, I'm not here to be the police for the rest of the world. We're here to hold each other accountable and to learn and grow together. So as followers of Jesus, I don't believe it's his desire that anyone under 21 should drink, and here's why. 1 Peter chapter 2, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, the supreme authority, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Obey the law of the land is what Peter is telling them, that we're to be good citizens of where we are. Listen, if all of a sudden they pass a law that says you have to hate Jesus, we're going to fight that one, okay? What's the legal drinking age in America? 21. Should it be 21 or should it be 18? Because listen, at 18, people can go serve in the war, right? How come they can't? Who cares? What's the law? 21. And so what's the rule for us as believers of Jesus? Follow the law. So 21, okay? It's, sometimes it's that simple. 
Do we, do we think that maybe it should be different? Maybe, but is it different? It's not. I hear people go, yeah, but if I lived over there at 18, or in some places at even 16, I could drink. Cool, so pack a bag. But as long as we live here, we're called to submit ourselves to every human authority. And so there's, is there any wiggle room on that one? There really isn't. A rule that the scripture sets for us when it comes to, and again, I'm, I'm applying this teaching to alcohol. This applies to, should we be speeding? No, but there's, I mean, but, but they won't catch you if you go a little bit over, right? Like, I struggle with this one, okay? But, but the law of the land is 21. And so listen, is it right for a 20 and a half year old believer to drink alcohol? It really isn't, okay? It does teach very clearly that believers shouldn't get drunk, okay? It, man, open Proverbs, pick any chapter, and you will find warnings about excessive drinking, warning about those who chase after wine, those whose lives are ruled by drunkenness. It's, it's all throughout the, the wisdom book that we have in the scriptures. It's a father writing to his son, and he's going, don't fall into this trap. He keeps saying, watch out for women and watch out for wine. Again and again, that's basically what Proverbs becomes. Son, there's two traps out there. Be careful. He does then talk about, man, but when you find that woman, how awesome. It's like Proverbs 31, cool chapter. But it's full of these warnings about being given to wine, about excessive drinking, about drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, Paul teaching, he says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is both a command and an illustration. It starts with, do not get drunk with wine. So, is drunkenness God's desire for his people? No. But then he goes on to explain, it's actually a beautiful illustration. When you get drunk, what controls the way you think? The alcohol. What controls the way you see and the way you talk? The way you act and the way you react? It's the alcohol, right? He's playing the two off each other. He goes, look, drunkenness, not for God's people. But in the same ways that drunkenness affects you, the Holy Spirit is to affect you. He is to control the way you think, the way you see the world, the way you speak, act, react. It's the way that he is meant to have control and influence over our lives, just like a drunk person, but in a good way. You know what I'm saying? But it starts with, do not be drunk with wine. Drunkenness is a disqualifier for leadership in the church. First Timothy 3, talking about the, um, the qualifications of an elder, a leader in the church. If anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. That, that's a list of qualifications, which means if someone is given to drunkenness, excessive drinking, they are disqualified from leader in, leadership in the church. And it's not just like this, this role of elder it's leadership in general. Over, Kim mentioned this over in Titus chapter 2, speaking to women in the church and how they're to lead. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking, but instead they're to teach what is good. 
It was, it was an automatic disqualification, not if someone ever had that second glass of wine at dinner and like, oh, that was too much, but those given to it, those living a lifestyle of excessive drinking, you were disqualified. Now, I'm not trying to say then, it's okay to get drunk every now and again, because again, do not get drunk on wine. But listen, some people have, oh man, I didn't realize how empty my stomach was and I had that second glass and like it was too much. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who set out to be drunk. Does that make sense? So let me ask this, with all of that in place, is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? Then that would be no. <laughs> Hold on. Is it a sin for any believer to drink alcohol? No. Jesus did it. <laughs> we can talk about that later. So is it right for every believer to drink alcohol? No. So here we have ourselves a bit of a problem. We came to the Bible looking for a rule, and what we found is sometimes, uh-oh, so what the church has done in the past is we've just gone, you know what, to be safe, let's just call it sin for everybody. Because for some people it might not be right, so let's put a rule on everybody. How did that work? What it did is it drove, and this is what a lot of these taboo topics does, it makes it shameful and drives it underground. Did people stop drinking? Nope, they just hit it. Even if it was just, again, man, in a, in a healthy way, like Jesus would have done a glass of wine at dinner, but it was, let's draw the shades, Let's make sure nobody can see. You definitely wouldn't go to a restaurant and do it. We made a rule that wasn't there in Scripture. No. Otherwise, there wouldn't be all the warnings about drunkenness. Some, there's this whole thing of like, but wasn't wine just grape juice? It was not. Otherwise, again, no one gets drunk on grape juice. There's a reason so much is talked about drunkenness in the Scriptures because this is alcohol. Okay? You can go to Walmart right now and find a range of potentness, like sure, but we would still say all of those are alcoholic beverages. Here's just the, the real facts, okay? I love to ferment things at home. It's science to me, I love it. I ferment food, I make kombucha, I do all of this different stuff. Here's what I know. You take grape juice into the desert and after a day, guess what you have? The beginnings of wine. They didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have the ability to just have juice. What they would do instead is they would make this really thick like molasses type drink. I don't even know how you call it that. I've never had it, but just reading up on it because it wouldn't ferment. They would distill it down to where it wasn't certainly what we would call juice. Yeah, I think you spooned it. Okay, it's what they would give to kids because anything else after two, three days was on its way to wine. It's just how the world works when you don't have refrigeration. When it says, there's a different word for juice and the word for wine. The same word that it talks about when Jesus made wine, when Paul tells Timothy, drink wine, it's the exact same word when Paul says, don't get drunk on wine. Like, it's, it's the same word. Okay. So here, here's the issue that we run into with this. We come to the scripture looking for, 
is it right or is it wrong? Should everybody do it? Should nobody do it? And the scripture doesn't always give us that answer. Sometimes we're asking a question this wasn't answering. So what do we do then? Sometimes is it right for everybody, wrong for everybody is not really a helpful question. In alcohol, we have to try to figure this out. Next week, we're gonna talk about money. Is there one way everyone should use money? There really isn't. It's situational. It depends on you and where you are and where you hope to be. And we're going to talk about it next week. But there is no, here is the rule from the Bible. Everybody spend your money the exact same way. It doesn't exist. Marriage. Does the Bible tell you who you should marry? Are you going to find his or her name in here somewhere? No. There are certain parameters that it puts around it. Hey, you know what? If he or she isn't a believer, that's out of bounds. That's not for you because for a married or for a believer and an unbeliever to be together, it's those scripture says unequally yoked. So there's some parameters, but I didn't find her name in there. There was a lot of me going, okay, Lord, what does this look like? What is this? And working it out. Politics. They had never even heard of a democratic system when the scripture was written. It literally didn't exist. And so is there a rule that says always vote Republican, always vote Democrat? Like, can you find me that verse? It doesn't exist. And so we have to work some of these things out. We're going to talk about how. But what the church has done too often in the past is said, let's just put a rule on it. Let's just make an always or a never that the scripture doesn't give. That's dangerous territory. I don't ever want to put words into the mouth of God. And when we as a church say, God says no one should ever drink alcohol, which the church has said before, and he doesn't say that, we're in a dangerous place. So, what's a better question that we can ask? When it, let's, let's stick specifically to alcohol, but again, it can kind of range out from there. There is no, it's right for everybody, it's wrong for everybody. What's a different question we can ask? Okay, should I drink alcohol? Okay, are there limitations on alcohol? Obviously, the scripture says, don't get drunk, it puts like a limit on there, but how many drinks is that? And how many, like, okay? Yep. Sure. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Absolutely. Anything? Yeah, for sure. Casey Lee. Okay. Yeah. So here's the thing all of our questions are circling around is they've moved from should you drink wine should, should we all do this? To now they're going, should I? I? I think a really wise question to learn to ask, I stole this from a pastor named Andy Stanley, uh, teaches down in the Atlanta area, and he asked this question, what's the wise choice for me? In, in those places where the scripture doesn't prohibit, or the scripture doesn't say everyone should, because there are things like that, and we're gonna discuss those, but in those ones where there's now a gray area, 
where they say, yes, but be careful. What's the wise choice for me? And here's the way that he kind of defines this wise choice. What's the wise choice in light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams? Okay? Not, we've already asked the question in this case, what does the Bible say? That is always the first question. But when the Bible doesn't say always yes or always no, now I have to go, okay, then what am I called to? What's the wise choice for me? in light of my past, my present, and my future. So let's apply this to alcohol. Let's see how this works out. So I'm asking these questions of myself. Is alcohol allowed for me? Am I over 21? So is alcohol allowed for me? Not breaking any laws in the Bible, okay? Is alcohol wise for me? My answer is no. I just spent the last, you know, 20 some minutes telling you the Bible's okay actually with drinking alcohol. It's not as against it as maybe some of us grew up with, but for me, the answer is no. In light of my past experiences, alcoholism runs in my family. In high school, I showed that I have an inability to control myself. I have an addictive personality with a lot of things in general I have to be careful with. In light of my past, is it wise for me? No. My current circumstance, I love what I do. The, the phase of life that my family is in, how impressionable my children are, what it would cost me if I was unable to control myself in light of my present circumstances, is it wise for me? And when I say me, I mean Bryce Payne. No, my future hopes and dreams. I wanna finish well. I wanna be a grandpa that my grandkids can be proud of. Should I have grandkids? No pressure. I didn't have those things because, again, in my family past and in some of my, whether you believe that it's genetic or it's just the, the environment I grew up in, however you want to look at it, I've seen those that I care about not finish well due to this very thing. So I look at it and say, is it wise for me? It really is not. Romans 14.23, some of you might be in a spot where you're going, yeah, I don't know. It might be, it might not be, and you're still wrestling. I would say then for you, and this is me talking, it's a no. Paul in Romans 14, talking about this idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols and, and drinking wine was tied in with this. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you're asking yourself, is this wise for me? And you don't have it nailed down yet, then I would advise you as your friend, refrain. Paul, in this same passage, again, talking about meat sacrificed to idols and, and wine, this is that stumbling block passage if you've ever read it. Paul says, I am fully convinced in my heart before Jesus Christ, I can eat and drink whatever I want. He says, nothing is unclean in and of itself. This, this conversation you're having, I'm already convinced I have freedom and liberty to do whatever I want. But... Some of you aren't there yet. If you're at a spot where God has called you to abstain, then abstain. If you're at a spot where you still have doubts and you're not sure where you stand, wait. Continue to seek the Lord on this because to just throw caution to the wind and do it while there's doubt in my heart is, is a rebellious posture before God. You might not be okay with this. I'm not totally sure yet, but I'm kind of saying I don't really care 
I'm going to do it my own way. Paul would say, wait. If it doesn't come from faith, if you don't have this assuredness that like, me and Jesus have talked about this and we're good, then it's sin. If you're in a spot where you go, I'm over 21, I'm allowed, and in light of past, present, future, I don't have a problem with alcohol. It's not something that I'm drawn to excess. It's not like you have freedom in this, like I think Paul would have said, I have full freedom in Christ. Then there's questions of, okay, so Lord, how often and how much? Because again, there's enough in Scripture about be careful that to just throw caution to the wind, because yay, Jesus. Lord, how much and how often? Because I also don't want to be unwise and just run headlong into this pit that other people fall into. So what's right but listen, for me? What's the wise choice for me? Listen, the church falls into the trap of legalism when we start to take personal convictions and put them on everyone. When we start to put restrictions and limitations on God's people that he didn't put on them. Again, the church has been guilty of this a lot in the past. C.S. Lewis says this when it comes to drinking in his book, Mere Christianity. It's a mistake to think that Christians ought to all be teetotalers. Of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian or of any Christian at a particular time to abstain from strong drink either because he is the sort of man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much, me, or because he wants to give money to the poor, or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for a good reason, from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage, meat, or beer, or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying that the things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who use them, he's taken the wrong turning. Do you hear what he's saying? But do you also hear how natural it is? There's something wicked in us that goes, well, if I can't, no one else should be able to either. Instead of going, you know what, it's not wise for me, I'm glad you enjoy it. Man, I, I, be safe with it, you know, like, again, don't just go nuts, but I'm glad that you enjoy it. It's not for me, and that's okay. There's areas where I have liberty, and some of you don't, and that's okay. But when we start putting those restrictions on everyone, we, we start to move into legalism. At the beginning of Romans 14, again, that passage that talks about the stumbling block and all of this, here's how Paul starts that whole conversation. Accept the one whose faith is weak, and I just want to stop on this, without quarreling over disputable matters. Paul was going, like, listen, he was talking about meat sacrificed to idols. Some people were seeing this, and they were going, man, are they worshiping another god now? And Paul was going, this stuff is disputable. Should they be drinking? Should they not? Listen. There is no crystal clear yes or no in the scripture. It's a disputable matter. Let's, let's actually learn to just accept one another. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, 
Oh, yeah, to their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Okay, so Paul came in going, look, I have full conviction. I'm good. He would say it like six verses later, I'm good. But I'm also going to be patient with those that are weaker. Let me tell you another little trick that the church has pulled in the past. Is it has said, those who abstain are strong, and those who have a glass of wine, or go to the cinema, or play cards, whatever things we, we demonized in the past, they're weak. What does Paul say? Paul says that the strong brother is the one who's able to actually embrace his freedom and eat whatever he wants and drink whatever he wants. But he's to be patient with the weaker brother. When I stand here and I say, listen, alcohol is not wise for me, that out of wisdom, I'm recognizing my own weakness and refraining. I'm not saying I'm so strong I don't need it and weak people need it. I'm saying I'm not strong enough to handle it. And so I abstain. And then Paul does talk about, listen, let's not put a stumbling block in front of it. Let's not use your freedom to shipwreck your brother, okay? If we go out to dinner, you can have a glass of wine in front of me. won't affect me at all. My, my temptation is not, oh, I have to have it, and if somebody else... Some people are. But he talks about, listen, sometimes we take this word that he talks about, a stumbling block, and then he says that will destroy your brother, and we go, well, that someone not like, might not like and they might judge me for... That's, oh, that's what Paul was talking about. He's talking about like those that were in this church going, the people who shared Jesus with me are eating meat sacrificed to idols. Are, do they not love Jesus? Do they want me to like worship these idols? Like this was like serious faith type stuff. This wasn't just a preference. So how did Paul know to have this conversation with them? Because they had talked about this issue. Far too often what we try to do is we go, okay, I don't want to put a stumbling block in there. I have liberty, but I don't know who else might be here. And so does that mean that it's basically a no for me unless I'm sitting alone in my house in a dark room, which is not a good place to drink. Please don't do that. <laughs> what if we actually just talk to each other? Hey, you know, we're going out to dinner together. Um, I was going to order a glass of wine. Would that be offensive to you at all? You know what? Actually, like, it's something I struggle with. Um, and it would be helpful if you didn't. No problem. Paul says again in Romans 14 there, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. What if the goal instead was to encourage each other, not put extra restrictions on? Not to, and you know what? Like This might be something where I wouldn't for me, but the scripture doesn't say you can't. And so you know what I'm going to choose? I would love for you to enjoy yourself. Go for it. What if we actually just started having these conversations instead of trying to always guess what was in somebody else's heart? It leads to just turmoil. And actually then we start to, who do they think they are to judge me? And they shouldn't, they never said a thing. I'm just convinced of it because we didn't talk about it. Does this make sense, church? So again, am I telling you, you all need to leave here and go drink wine? No. Am I telling you that if you're over 21, and that wine is not a struggle for you, you can leave here and go drink a glass of wine? Yes, in the right context, if it's something the Lord has given you liberty to. You start to see how this, it's not super clear cut. It is for me, I, it's ridiculously clear cut whether I should drink or not. What's not clear cut is whether I should allow you to drink. You start to see how all of a sudden I put myself in judgment over you that's where we start to get into some difficult waters.
uh, not in my notes, I'll touch on it quickly. What if I'm out with a group of brothers, we go to dinner, and I see one of them starting to just go real far? What's my job then as a Christian brother? Forget pastor, put any of yourselves in that situation. What's my responsibility then? Sometimes it's just very practical stuff of like, yoink, you're not driving. Okay, cool. Is that where it ends? Okay, call for it. Make sure they get home safely. That's just like good human being stuff, right? We're not even talking Christians. As a follower of Jesus, watching another brother or sister in Christ start to do the things we're warned against, drink excessively, get... What's my responsibility? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do I have a responsibility to that brother or sister? Absolutely I do. To caution them. Again, not to like begin to parent them and it doesn't work well. If you've ever seen someone getting drunk and somebody comes in and goes, listen, buddy, it doesn't go well, okay? But instead to go, hey, man, like, I, I just got to say, like, I'm a little worried. Be careful. Here's what the scripture says. And like, it seems like you're kind of flirting with that line. I love you and I don't want to see you do something you regret. Can they blow me off and do, of course they can they're adults, they're over 21, they're, you know, whatever. But my responsibility is to lovingly walk with them, to show them grace and mercy and remind them of truth, 100%. Even though it's awkward. The reason these things are taboo is because they're awkward, okay? But if we can't get to a point where we can have awkward conversations with each other, can we really say we love each other? I'm willing to watch you potentially shipwreck yourself because I don't want to enter into an awkward conversation, that's a pretty selfish place to be, right? But it's, go ahead. Yep. I don't believe Jesus has led us to call these things taboo. And if he hasn't led us, there's kind of only one other option. You know what I mean? It's the enemy who has gone, no, 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 just keep quiet. Don't talk about him. Because he knows then shame comes in and it's awkward. And now we just, we know that that person is over there drinking. It's kind of that worst kept secret, but also like we can't say it. We've just called that person taboo. We can't discuss them. We can't help them. We can't, instead of going, that's a brother or sister in Christ who I value so much, I'm willing to enter in and have an awkward conversation. And they might spit in my face and they might, I don't know. But the kingdom is one of righteousness, peace, and joy. And I'm called to walk with them. Not cast them out, nor to go, hey, it's fine, don't worry about it. But to show them grace and mercy and remind them of the truth. After that, it's between them and Jesus. It's not my job to make sure that person never drinks again. But it is my job to walk with them, to remind them of the grace that they've been given. Does this make sense? Okay. As I said last week, and I'll probably keep saying, my goal has never been to solve all of these taboo issues from up here in the front, but to bring them up, like, like Shanna said, to begin to normalize them so that we can have these conversations together in smaller groups and so that we can begin to figure out where am I on this? 
and how do I walk with you on this? So some of you might go, man, I have maybe some more questions than when we even started. Cool, I have no problem with that. Let's continue to talk about them with other safe people in safe places and begin to normalize these conversations. I'm gonna ask the music team to come up. I'm gonna, where are we at? Yes, Janetta. It would be, we could find, you can find instances of both, because even here in, um, in Romans 14, Paul talks specifically about meat, but then at some points he goes, look, or wine, or like any kind of, he brings it in going, this, this has been an issue in the past. The problem that they had, again, just really quickly, but it's important to understand, they were having these issues because a part of their regular gatherings was they would do communion. And for communion, they had these little prepackaged piece of styrofoam and I guess you'd call it jute, right? No. May it never be, Lord. They had a meal and, and they would spend the day together celebrating what Jesus had done for them and what was a part of every meal, meat and wine. And so Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, he goes, look, some of you are coming to take communion and you're getting drunk at communion. Like what? May it never be. And here they were going, okay, maybe the wine isn't the biggest piece, but the meat we don't know what to do with it. And Paul was going, discover your own personal conviction. What has the Lord called you to? And then ask, how do I handle this wisely around brothers and sisters that might see it differently? If this is a stumbling block for them, then the most loving thing I can do, Paul would say, I'll never eat meat or drink wine again. If that's the way that I love my brother or sister the best. Or, you know what? They're at a spot where they're going... I'd prefer not to, but like, it doesn't tell us not to in the word. So like, you're okay, go ahead. Like, but to walk wisely with one another. Okay, does that make sense? So we're gonna sing a song. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing a song called Spirit Lead Me because ultimately that's what we need. In, in some of these taboo situations, again, some of them are pretty clear cut. Some of them, it's a matter of, of liberty and what's wise. What we need is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so as we close with singing this song, make it a prayer. Lord, when it comes to alcohol, some of you are under 21, he's made it clear, but one day you won't be. Would you lead me in this? Would you show me what line to walk? And do we trust him enough then to walk it? So let's pray and then sing together. Lord Jesus, your word is true. The limitations you've set, God, we want to honor the freedoms you've given, we don't want to be afraid of. We want to be led by your Holy Spirit. We want to walk wisely before you, but using the freedoms that you have given us, enjoying the things that you've given us to enjoy and abstaining from the things you've called us to let go, would you lead your people in this? And may we respond to one another with grace and mercy. If, if something is offending us, may we just go talk to the person in love if we're not sure if something is offensive, may we go to our brother and sister and just have the conversation that you would be glorified, that we could truly be unified together, have peace and joy together, even in some of these taboo areas. Come and just build your church, God, I pray. One body, united together through the Holy Spirit. But we need your leading. So would you just speak to each of our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.